This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is John D. Leonardo, president of Humane Long Island, and as such oversees its International Duck Defenders Project. Humane Long Island is an animal advocacy organization located, not surprisingly, on Long Island and is considered the top domestic fowl rescue in that region. Every year, as Easter approaches, there are widely communicated advisories to be cautious and measured about purchasing any kind of rabbit. The main message being, don't only because this often amounts to an impulse buy with unhappy, sometimes tragic consequences. That message remains no less important mere days away from this Easter, but we're adding a lower profile but no less significant warning. Do not buy and release domestic ducklings. These ducks are sometimes purchased, like the bunnies, as an impulse buy, in this case often as props for photos, and set free on ponds and in the wild, yielding unfortunate, even atrocious outcomes. We'll discuss this and other aspects of the work Humane Long Island and Duck Defenders do when I speak with John D. Leonardo in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A programming note, next week on Talking Animals, my guest will be Jane Goodall, the ethologist, activist, and conservationist, first noted for her pioneering work in the 1960s studying chimpanzees in Gombe, Tanzania. She's in Tampa at the moment, and we recorded an interview yesterday that covered everything from her impressions of young people when it comes to their attitudes about animals and the environment to her nightly ritual of drinking a glass of whiskey at 7 p.m., toasting others elsewhere doing the same. That's Dr. Jane Goodall next Wednesday, April 5th, on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Tanya Flink, a digital editor at Veg News, chiefly to discuss one of her recent pieces called Grab These 18 Accidentally Vegan Products on Your Next Trip to the Grocery Store. More on this and those accidentally vegan products with Tanya Flank a bit later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk about ducks, Easter, and related matters with John D. Leonardo. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885, this is John D. Leonardo on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, John. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Uh, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. And we obviously have important and, and timely uh, topics to discuss, and we will get to those in just a few minutes. But I think it might be helpful in telling that story of animal advocacy to hear some earlier stories of yours. So, for example, what did animals mean to you as a kid? Yeah, so uh, when I was a kid, I never had any pets, but but I loved insects. I loved arachnids. I was always out in the uh, in the um, you know in the yard, uh, staring at them and you know rescuing them in the house and bringing them back outdoors. So uh, were pets not allowed in your family? Is that uh, why you didn't have any? Or oh uh, no, no, we just uh, my my dad loved dogs, but he was allergic, so it just never kind of happened. But I um, see. But but we've since rescued a bunch of cats. My parents. Uh, 
now now have some of their rescued cats. So, and they also actually have some rescued turtles. So oh wow! Change quite a bit. Okay, there you go. So it's a different situation for sure. So, uh, so when did you yourself first feel a uh, a particular kinship with an animal? Well, I I I don't know about when I felt a particular kinship of an animal outside of of insects. I mean, I, I feel like I always loved insects since I was a little kid. I always cared about them. You know, when when you know someone went to, to squash them, I would always stop them and <laughs> cause a fit. But um, wait, 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 I, so, sorry to interrupt you, John. Wait, yeah. Which insects in particular uh, were were kind of the focus of your fascination? Oh, all of them. I, I didn't really. I, I just saw all of them as, you know, having their own little society. You know, you lift a rock and you see dozens of different species, you know, yeah. uh, living in their own little, little cities. And it fascinated me. But I, my fascination with, 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 you know, helping animals, I don't think ever arose from having quite the affinity for animals, but rather just from a sense of, of ethics in general. I mean, mm -hmm. I always wanted to help the group that needed the most help in this world. And for a long time, um, I've actually planned to be a school psychologist. Um, that was my, my bachelor's degree was in um, psychology. I actually managed a day program for people with special needs after I got out of college. Um, and that's a very um, vulnerable population that was exploited in circuses for experimentation and, and all the different ways that we exploit non-human animals today. So while I'm very passionate about that population, I, I once I learned about factory farming and I learned about the current abuses of, of animals, um, I, I kind of shifted directions. And, and that was actually from studying Jainism in, in college. I took a world religions class, never knew about Jainism at all. And then I found, you know, I learned about this um, this little-known um, Indian religion that, that um, fundamental practice was, uh, fundamental tenet was ahimsa or nonviolence. And, you know, that day I, I stopped eating meat. I went vegan shortly thereafter, and I became an activist. Wow. So that was all through just uh, being exposed to and studying Jainism. Yes. Yeah, that was a big part of my story. I actually now have a graduate certificate in Jain Studies from the International School of Jain Studies, and I write for a weekly column in the South Asian Times about um, about vows that we can make um, to uh, to make the world a kinder place every week. That's great. So it sounds like that continues to kind of inform you and your work and your sort of general guiding philosophy. Absolutely. Yeah. But it also sounds like <clears throat> earlier on before you arrove at Jainism, that a big part of your kind of concern was the little guy, the underdog, people that maybe needed some help or needed a, a leg up of some kind. So that sounds like sort of a combination of those things. Yep, Absolutely. So I guess at some point this intersected in terms of you um, pursuing some kind of rescue or activism uh, that, that reflected, I guess, the, the, that combination of interests and philosophies and concerns. Tell me about those those initial days of uh, of activism. Yeah, well, I um, I think from from. Uh Looking into factory farming footage, I somehow got into um, got into uh, people for the ethical treatment of animal PETA's uh, mailing list. So I got an email from PETA that during my spring break in, in college, uh, I think it was junior year, um, uh, Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus was going to be coming to the National Coliseum right by me. So I uh, they had these horrible pictures of these baby elephants being hit with bull hooks. Of, 
which are um, heavy metal batons with hooks on the, on, on the end yeah. and uh, literally shocked with stun guns. Um, so I had gone to the circus. I was never comfortable at the circus as a kid. I always thought something was quite wasn't quite right, but I could never, you know, I didn't know the details. But once, you know, the hard-hitting realities were right in my face, I knew I had to spend my spring break protesting. So the, the folks who were there um, were, were organizing the protest were elderly, and they said, all right, we've been doing this long enough. Now there's young blood here. You, you know, you're organizing it next year. So we went from doing our first ever circus protest to, to organizing the following year. Um, and the, we, we, it went really well. And um, then I, another circus called Cole Brothers Circus was coming to town. And with Ringling, uh, everyone had bought their tickets online and were driving in. So we were basically asking people not to come back to the circus. But with Cole Brothers Circus, People were buying their tickets on site, so we could really reach them before they put their money on the table and convince them not to spend their money that way in the first place. And we just saw thousands and thousands of dollars go out of the circus's pocket every night. So it was such an empowering experience that, um, that a bunch of my friends who I got to turn out, you know, join me for the, the protest, um, said, hey, this is great. We got to do this for other issues. We got to get active. Uh, one of the guys who was who said that was actually a hunter, <laughs> so it was, it was oh, quite yeah? interesting. Wow! And he's vegan now, actually, uh, because of those um, those protests and our subsequent activism after that. Um, so I always tell people, you know, no matter where where you are now, you know, you can always be an activist. You can always live live life a little kinder. And and I, I tell everyone else, don't give up on anyone because no matter where they are, you meet them where they are and just um, be a good role model. I mean, this. this this guy, he was—he only came to the protest because I went to pick up my friend Mark, and he was playing basketball with him, and um, and he went to leave, and I said, "What are you doing? Get in the car." And he said, "Oh, I'm, I'm not going to protest the circus. I'm a hunter." And I said, "Okay, you're a hunter. That means you're okay with beating elephants with bullhooks." And he said, "No, that's messed up." So I said, "Yeah, that's messed up. Get in the car." And he did. <laughs> and you know, a well, year later, he was vegan. So. Yeah, you sound you sound pretty persuasive. And and just so I'm clear, um, this was still basically during kind of when you were the uh, a college student. Is that right? Yes, yes. This was when I was a college student. Yeah. I, I was I was a senior at that time. Um, you know, just just on summer vacation. But uh, but him and others, they said, you know, we got to do this for other or, uh, other issues. We got to get organized. Let's start a group. And I said, great. Uh, who's in charge? And they all pointed at me. So that's how uh, Humane Long Island was formed. And um, and then we we just kind of took it off. It took off from there. And then we found that we we were very successful um, eliminating animal circuses on Long Island. We um, we actually got them uh, their permits denied in Islip in 2015, and then we worked with a group in New Jersey to, to get them denied there about a month later. Yeah. And between the two cancellations, you know, they, they actually bankrupted and they went under, and Cold Brothers Circus doesn't exist today because of that. Um, yeah. So I, I think when, when, I mean, my life goal when I got into this, this, uh, this business or this, uh, you know, in the animal advocacy was, um, was to shut down Ringling Brothers Circus. I said, by the time I die, I want to, um, you know, end Wriggling Brothers Circus. I want to see see that fall. I want to see the animals breed. And before I was 29 years old, I was PETA's animals entertainment expert and their senior manager of animals entertainment campaigns, leading the last ever protest of Wriggling Brothers Circus right where it all began at Nassau Coliseum. So I, I always tell people, I mean, even if, if you know, a task seems, seems large and you feel like you can't make a difference, 
you know, just start taking steps, even if they're small steps, and just keep making those successive steps. And before you know it, you know, your life goal will be completed in a couple of years, and, you know, everything else is a bonus from there on in. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you certainly were way ahead of schedule on your ringling goal. Of course, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, publicity recently about, you know, that they're coming back now, obviously, with a circus that's totally animal-free. So it'll be really interesting to see how that that works. I mean, once they... Uh, remove the elephants, and then I think in many cases some of the other animals, uh, I think their ticket sales drop precipitously. So they've already kind of tried this a little bit differently, but I, you know, I'll be very curious to see how this new kind of more specific attempt where it's, you know, from the get-go it's animal-free and it's being presented that way. I guess they've gotten some other, you know, kind of Cirque du Soleil type acts to sort of round out the show. So be very interested to see what happens. But I would guess your own experience, but going back to the beginning of that part of the story, was that when you protested Ringling, at least initially, like you said, a lot of people already had their tickets. They maybe paid for parking, maybe, you know, incurred some other expenses. So they probably were unlikely, often at least, to turn on their heels and leave. But in contrast... With the coal, like you said, they hadn't purchased their tickets. So to me, I think especially if you're young and sort of hoping to have some uh, impact, the fact that at least the Cole Brothers people would actually say, you know what, I didn't, I didn't realize that, we're not going to go. You, you could actually see immediately the impact of your efforts, whereas sometimes with the Ringling people, they would listen, they would be obviously horrified uh, depending on what all was being said, but they'd still kind of feel committed to go that night. So it must have been, I think, the difference probably for you and your, uh, and your, and your friends and, and future colleagues, I guess, was that the Cole Brothers people could, would actually probably in many cases bail out upon hearing what this, because they, they didn't already have a stake in, in terms of ticket sales, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think when people know better, they, they do better. So it's, it's better for us to, to reach them as early as possible. I mean, I think humane education is key, whether we're talking about kids or we're talking about adults. I think people are generally good, and if you give them a good alternative and, and reach them before they've made a major investment, I think people will, will generally do the right thing in most cases. Yeah. This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is John D. Leonardo, president of Humane Long Island and overseeing also its International Duck Defenders Project. If you have a question for John or would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So now that you're kind of running your, your own organization, which we'll get into a little bit more in just a sec, but I'd be curious, um, what would you say are some of the most important things you learned during your time at PETA? Oh, I think the most important things I learned were, were strategic, strategic campa campaigning, really, um, you know, uh, game planning and, you know, uh, not banging your head against the wall with the, you know, with just doing the same old thing, but really creating a strategy and figuring out how you're going to get from A to Z and, and following that. I mean, I think that we have a lot of passion in our movement. But I'd like to see a lot more strategy in it, and I think that's one thing that PETA does very, very well. I mean, PETA is known for their, their um, you know, very visual and powerful demonstrations, but there's a lot more to PETA than that. I mean, there's a lot of corporate outreach. There's a lot of uh, media outreach. There's a lot of big pieces to the puzzle that I think the average activist um, doesn't know. But while I was there, I actually um, oversaw their grassroots campaigns department, and we launched a program called um, – the uh, PETA Action Leader Program, where we're actually training 
activist on strategic campaigns now. So I encourage people, if they're interested, to uh, go to PETA.org and sign up to be a PETA action leader and uh, get those tools, those free literature, free posters, but also the know-how to um, both help PETA with their campaigns, but also to, to launch your own in your community. And I think the second most important thing I learned there was, was media, um, really how to, uh, um, you know, I think the how to generate media interest. And, um, I mean, I think a lot of times people try to force what, what they want, um, you know, they want to force their campaigns onto the media, where I think, you know, strategically we got to figure out what is the media interested in and how can we fit the framework of our campaigns into that um, and, and sell them that, on that idea. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's something we, we need to do a lot more of. But now my local organization, I mean, we've had more than 500 major media hits. So, um, and, and I think that's how we sway public opinion, um, yeah. I think. I think, I mean, being on NPR right now, I mean, this, you're magnifying our voice and getting the message out for animals in a way that, that we can't simply by holding a poster on the street. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of people, even within the animal advocacy world, that have mixed feelings about PETA, if that, and the other people who, you know, swear by PETA and their, their, their strategies and their work and their campaigns. But you, there's certainly people that I've talked to, you just now, and just Two or three weeks ago, I had Alina Nilawan, who is the founder of Legal Impact for Chickens, and who spent some time at PETA. I asked her a similar question, and she decided the meticulous attention to detail that, that's just part of PETA uh, and basic functions, and she cited as a, as a specific example, press release, and just how you know she would write a release, then her boss would look it over, and then it would go to someone else, one or two steps up the chain, just to make sure that just uh, there was no inaccuracies in terms of information, obviously, but even just that grammatically and otherwise punctuation, just so that there wasn't vulnerability on the level of, well, this this seems kind of illiterate or this seems kind of full of mistakes, so we can't really take it seriously. And that was just one of the many things she noted that their attention to detail over the years has become just so precise that it makes a big difference when, you know, every, every, every press release that goes in or out or whatever at least has no flaws of that kind, whatever else people may think about the message being sent. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. Pete is very meticulous. And I think that a lot of times when Peter says something, people, you know, think it's unbelievable because they don't want to believe that, say, you know, little baby roosters in the egg industry at one day old or ground up alive. I mean, it sounds horrible. You know, and, but this is the reality, and I think PETA is um, is extremely accurate, but also very blunt to the realities, which is something we need a lot more in media today. Yeah. So what were, uh, just to back up a, a hair, what were the circumstances that compelled you to start uh, Humane Long Island? Yeah, so um, it was basically, you know, it wasn't my idea. It was just successful, um, you know, uh, successful circus demonstrations and people saying, hey, we got to do this more often. So, you know, I went with it and I never saw it blowing up the way it did today. Um, you know, but were you, I, just, I, just to clarify, sorry, John, you, you, yeah. were, you were working for or doing some stuff with PETA at the time, plus your own. Uh, the the efforts that you described earlier that you and your your college uh, fellow college students were doing to protest the circus, et cetera. So was that kind of all overlapping the same time? 
Uh, there was some overlap, but not quite then. In the early days, um, I was working with people with special needs. I was managing three-day programs on Long Island. Right. Um, so uh, so that's that's when we, we founded this organization, originally as an organization called LION, Long Island Orchestrating for Nature. Yeah. Once again, we, we you know, we just, uh, we were, it was LION because we were circ- protesting the circus. Um, and But it was, you know, a Facebook group. It, it, was, it wasn't, you know, a big organization. But then uh, people started offering us some donations. So we said, hey, Lynn, we'll file for a 501c3. We got that. And then, um, you know, we we started hearing about other issues. We started protesting, um, you know, the, the fur industry. And we got a big uh, a big story in Newsday's fashion section of our, our uh, Black Friday protests our very, at our very first protest. Um, I mean, and at that time, we didn't even really know what we were doing. We went to our... <laughs> We we picked you know I, I picked a a, a fur pro, uh, a fur store um, just for proximity to my girlfriend's house. It was around the corner. We said, "Hey, we'll go there." It ended up being a terrible location, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, we 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 couldn't even uh, most people couldn't even see us from the street. It was you know uh, right in front of a, a train station. It wasn't during train hours, <laughs> but for whatever reason, well, you know, we had called the police before to give them a heads up. We had called the media. I don't know who told the first store we were coming. But the first store was was so nervous about us protesting that they actually shuttered um, for the duration of our protest. Oh wow! Uh, and that way, it was very successful. But we were like, we don't want to stand outside a closed store, so uh, let's figure out another place to go to. Um, and and we just went to the next closest one. It was Merrick Furs on Sunrise Highway, which was an excellent location just by accident. Um, it was you know up against a major road with lights. So when uh, when when the, when the lights were red, cars would line up. We could give them literature. We could speak to them. Um, it was uh, uh, we were right in front of the store. We had signs saying, you know, honk if you heart animals, and you know, people would would honk their horn, and the, the first store would get <laughs> aggravated with that. And they had a parking lot that was in the back, but only a front entrance, so people would have to park their car and then walk past us, so we could speak to them on their way in. It was really just the perfect location. Um, and it was it went so well that again people said, hey, we got to do this, you know, every week. Let's make Fur Free Friday every every Friday because you know in the animal rights movement, Black Friday is known as Fur Free Friday. It's an international day of protest against the fur industry. But this went so well, we were back out there the next Friday and the next Friday and the next Friday. Yeah. And then um, we we protest about for about two years every Friday um, during the first season, and um, and then the the third year. We were, you know, we were all older. We had, you know, more responsibilities at our daily jobs, so we couldn't be there every Friday. But we said, hey, we'll commit to one day a week, and we'll get together every every week and figure out when it's going to be. And that threw the first store through such a loop because I think they they resigned before to, to knowing when we were going to be there and were able to prepare themselves. But now that we were doing it much more sporadically. You know, they became much more frustrated, and at the end of that season, they actually closed up the shop, and Merrick Furs no longer exists. Wow. So, uh, so That's yeah, great. So, because, you know, what, what's great about that story, I mean, there's a bunch of things that are great about it, but how, like, just kind of laughing that you described early on, like, sort of almost bumbling in, in your, like, well, I, we didn't really pick a good location, and it wasn't, we didn't do this right, whatever. And yet, you know, it actually worked, and... um and you guys were sort of undetoured and just, you know, you learned and you traveled that learning curve. And so, you, you know, you made different choices subsequently, obviously, 
based on some of those experiences. But it's just great because it basically the, the, the initial message was, hey, we got to do something. Let's just jump in and do it. Hey, this store happened to be closer to my girlfriend's house. We'll start there. Um, but, I mean, you know, the, the point is to do it rather than just to sort of think about it and say, oh, I don't know about this or I don't know about that, but to take action. Absolutely. Yeah, get out and figure it out, you know, along the way. And like I said, if you need help, contact us at humanelongisland.org or contact PETA. I mean, there's lots of experienced activists out there who are willing to help you. So I'm gonna, we're going to get into our kind of focus of our conversation in just one sec, John. But one email that just came in that I think this might be a really timely uh, moment for you to try to address this. This email says, how do you get young people to step up and take over? Several of the board members at Florida Voices for Animals are in our 70s and have been at this for over 30 years. We need young people to get involved. So I'm sure they're hearing, you know, kind of that even now you're, you're obviously younger. You started when you were in college. Uh, so any ideas you might have about how to get younger people kind of funneled into especially organizations maybe that already exist like Florida Voices for Animals? Yeah, I mean, I would try to speak, speak at high schools, speak at colleges as much as you can. I think there's a lot of people who don't realize that um, that animal rights can be a career, you know, um, that that people can pursue this and make real changes. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who, who again, they're afraid to be bumbling around. But um, but if if us folks who are more experienced, you know, get into these classrooms and, and tell people, hey, this is a viable path for you to pursue, whether it's you know it's just as a, a volunteer in addition to your you know your your paying gig. Or if you want to make this your career, there there's lots of opportunities, and there are are experienced people willing to show you the way. And certainly along those lines, there's all kinds of internships at all kinds of organizations and other things where people who just want to kind of get their feet wet, even if they're in school, they might have a busy schedule uh, before they even think about uh, an actual job or a career that way. It's a great way to kind of um, I know a lot of people that, that have gone on to do great things, you know, interned at one or more of those organizations, you know, during the summer or during break or during even the school year. That was just part of their schedule. And they mm-hmm. really they really got excited by the work and sometimes they veered off and actually just did make that their career. So Yeah, well, I, I was uh, PETA's action leader program, it, the only commitment is, you know, one one protest a month, um, you know, uh, on a topic that of uh, that you you work with PETA to decide what it what what it's going to be. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's not a big commitment, but it's 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 taking those steps, you know, and yeah. successive steps, and and learning every single time with guidance from experienced people. Right. So people, you know, just. Don't be afraid to get out there. I mean, anyone can do, you know, one action a month. Right. So uh, here we are. We're about 10 days away from Easter, a time when shows like this one, publications, social media posts, other outlets, carry advisories against purchasing rabbits. You often, you know, hear about don't get a rabbit because it's basically kind of often an impulse buy and then there's unpleasant or even tragic consequences. So we're here partly today, I guess, to expand on that message with a less commonly heard message, which is don't buy domestic ducklings. So this is the point at which I need to ask you for some remedial instruction on, on domestic ducks, how that works and what, what prompts people to to purchase them and then what happens after that typically. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, around Easter, we, we start seeing ducklings and chicks and all these little baby animals pop up even in in hardware stores like tractor supply 
um, you know, where, where people, you know, they go in for some hardware supplies and then they see this cute little bird smiling back at them and they, they bring them home. I mean, oftentimes we'll, we'll hear from, you know, grandfathers or parents who say, hey, I thought, you know, this would be a, a cute little gift for my, my kid during the holiday. You know, we'll present them in an Easter basket, take some great pictures, and then we'll release them to the wild when they get older. What people don't realize is, you know, just like our companion and farm animals, domestic ducks were domesticated by humans thousands of years ago, and years of selective breeding have produced waterfowl vastly different from their wild counterparts, um, just like dogs and wolves. I mean, your, your domestic duck is as different from a wild duck as your house cat is from a tiger. They typically have large bodies, small wings. Um, they, can't, they can't fly, and they can never migrate. They're literally sitting ducks for predators and cruel people when abandoned to the wild. I mean, in most cases, they don't even have camouflage. So, you know, you can't release them. It's, um, it's both illegal to do so, and, and it's a death sentence. But I think that most people, they're, when, when they get them, they're not aware of that. They just, you know, they, they, they don't really think. They're, yeah. they're you know, <laughs> they it's, see it's... this cute little duck and they go, oh, he's adorable. My kid will love him. Right. Well, that that's the thing. And again, whether it's bunnies or uh, chicks or ducks or whatever, you you see that happening around Easter time. And then the the key question is, what happens next after Easter has come and gone? And because um, again, a lot of people, I don't. I mean, you know, it's no great shakes for a lot of the rabbits that, that get purchased that way either. But I think what isn't as often discussed. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today was. Uh, this idea of ducklings, um, and again, what what risk they're at when someone says, "Hey, well, this didn't work out to be a family duck, or, or we can't really look after this duck anymore, or whatever. We'll just take it down to the pond, you know, over you know three streets over, or whatever." And then, like you say, then they they're totally vulnerable, and it's going to end badly, and they're you know just almost waving at predators. And it's funny you would say anything about the tractor supply company because this email came in a few minutes ago, and I was waiting, I was just saving it till. We got on this topic, but this says, I used to live in Bartow, and I remember visiting Tractor Supply Company one day near Easter. I was surprised that they were selling chicks in a pretty prominent display up front of the store. At first, I thought they sold these all year long, but I later learned that they are only available around Easter time. I was curious about whether your guest has ever protested this company's business practice. It's not cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we hear that all the time. I think that that Tractor Supply is really taking a, taking advantage of their customers um, and, and not, you know, teach, teaching them that these animals are, are just another piece of merchandise, another, you know, another uh, tractor s- supply or a piece of hardware. I mean, they're even the way they're getting these animals, they're getting them shipped to their stores via USPS like they're parcels. But domestic ducklings they're not easter gifts they're not photo props they're not parcels and they're not hardware these are thinking feeling individuals who require you know a 10 plus year commitment um in the case of of domestic geese they can live up to be 50 years old so i mean these are major major commitments and people need to um you know be able to give them daily care proper feed, which they don't even sell at Tractor Supply. I mean, at Tractor Supply, the, the duckling feed there is just very low-grade. You know, it's made to get these animals to the 28-day slaughter weight. Um, you know, it's, it's not 
they don't have proper nutrition. Mm. Um, so these animals end up with all sorts of developmental uh, disabilities, often before they're even released. So almost ever, we very rarely do owner surrenders because we rescue hundreds of domestic ducks abandoned to the wild every single year. We don't have any capacity for owner surrenders. I'm sure. But, you know, usually there's one or two exceptions we make every year. Yeah. And 95% of those are, are disabled ducks, ones that, you know, someone kept in a bathtub and, you know, gave a poor diet, and the animals have splayed legs, or they have something called niacin deficiency, where they're stepping on their own toes, and, mm. you know, they typically have organ failure. Um, so when you, go to the, when you go to the stores, you know, and you see this cute little duckling, they're not telling you what a big commitment these animals are, that you need to ensure that they have predator-proof, climate-proof housing, that you need to, you know, give them proper feed, like Missouri waterfowl maintenance, which you can get on Chewy.com, um, so it's not hard to get, but they're not selling it in tractor supply because it's more expensive, and they just want to sell that dirt-cheap stuff. Wow. So it's, it's you know, I think that... Um, I'm glad people are speaking up about tractor supply, and I encourage the person to write in to call call corporate and tell them, please stop selling these animals. It's not going to break the bank for uh, for tractor supply. I mean, this is just a quick money grab for them, and, and it's unacceptable, and I think they actually turn off a lot of customers. I know a lot of people who say that they won't even shop at tractor supply during the spring season because they don't want to see the, the sad side of these chicks and these ducklings. And and uh, obviously Tractor Supply only does this around Easter time. Is that generally the way this this works, the, just the, the broader thing that we're talking about, John, which is that it's it's uh, really kind of uh, strictly an Easter phenomenon where these, these ducks are for sale at all kinds of places, not just at a Tractor Supply? Largely. They're largely an Easter phenomenon. That's when we see the... the you know, the most animals being bought and abandoned. Um, but we also see a bunch from uh, from hatching projects, schools that will keep these little babies in incubators, um, which has a very high mortality rate in the first place, um, and then, you know, ships them back to, uh, to the hatcheries where they got them from, in many cases, at the end of the project, where they're killed because they don't want the pathogens from the schools potentially infecting their flocks. So we see a lot of, um, uh, we hear from a lot of teachers, actually, who say, hey, I didn't want to send these little babies back because I heard they're going to be killed. Can you take them? Um, and the only time we'll take them is if we get a commitment from that school to never do the hatching projects again. So we find that, uh, that you know, often this is something that's done in schools around the spring season, yeah. which just compounds this, this um, Easter abandonment. But then we find uh, during September, at the start of the school year, we find a bunch of um, a little older domestic ducks that, that are abandoned that I think are, are probably the ones that, um, that teachers kept through the summer, and now they're going back to school, and they don't have time for them. So mm -hmm. they tried their best, and now they let them go. And, you know, but again, it's a death sentence. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like if they, they you know, killed that animal themselves. 
Jeez. Uh, well, I have a few more questions, of course, but let me identify again. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is John D. Lee and Arnold, president of Humane Long Island. We're discussing his work as an animal activist, including his pre-Easter advisory urging against buying and releasing, especially domestic ducklings. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, John, just so I'm clear, is is it like pretty much just automatic or guaranteed that if someone uh, buys a, a duckling for Easter time, that it's going to have a bad outcome? I mean, are, are there any versions there? Obviously, it'd be a small percentage, if any, I'm guessing from what you've said already, where people, families do get ducklings and do care for them and, and continue to care for them and just treat them like they would other pets and they're, they're just part of the family and they just stay part of the family, you know, indefinitely. I think the adage adopt, don't shop applies to all animals. So if someone really does think they are ready for that commitment, you know, of 10 to 20 years um, and, they, and they're willing and have the, the resources to build that predator-proof enclosure and give them that specialized veterinary care when they need it, Go through a rescue because they'll they'll be honest with you about what that commitment is going to be, and they they will will give you that good food and and tell you all the things that Tractor Supply is not going to tell you. So I think that if if someone does want to you know care for for these birds, I mean ducks are wonderful. I love them, you know, and and they can be uh, you know wonderful companions if you know what you're signing up for. But I think the problem is when you buy them from the store or you ship them from a hatchery, you know, you're, you're not getting an honest depiction of what it is to care for these animals. I mean, you can't keep them in your house. You can't keep them in your bathtub. I mean, these cute little ducklings, they, they, they poop every six minutes. When they get to be adults, they poop every 15 minutes, and their poops get a lot bigger. So uh, you got to be prepared for that and, and, you know, have an outdoor... Uh, enclosure where where you lock them up every single night so they don't get eat, eaten by by raccoons and they don't get killed by basically every predator out there. Um, so so again, yeah, ducks can make great companions, but adopt, don't shop, so you know what you're getting into. Right, and it sounds like you really have to like do some serious homework and be prepared for the commitment that you learn about through that homework. And if you're not, then don't don't proceed to even bring the, the duck home to begin with. Absolutely. So here, here's a question, and actually just looks like we have another comment on, on tractor supply. But my, my question even before that, which I was about to ask, is is tractor supply uh, doing the thing with chicks? Is it like a money-making thing, or is it like a drawing card to bring people into the store otherwise? Because, oh, it's Easter time, we happen to have chicks, and so people come in and get their other stuff too. I mean, what... What is in it for tractor supply? I mean, I, I think it's just a quick money grab. I don't think anyone's going there necessarily for the chicks. I think that most people who, who um, you know, even people who do buy the animals, they know they're going to get, uh, you know, they're going to get better sex chicks, you know, ones that are, are um, you know, uh, are as in, you know, when you buy them, you know they're going to be male or you know they're going to be female. I mean, I hear all the time people buying sick birds from Tractor Supply, birds that, you know, they were told were going to be female but end up being male, which is quite an issue both with with um, chickens and with ducks 
because, I mean, in, in the case of chickens, a lot of people are, are zoned for hens. They're not zoned for roosters. So they buy a bunch of hens, and then they find out, up oh, one is a rooster. Now what do you do with that rooster? A traditional shelter is not going to take them. So they end up being dumped half the time as well. Um, you know, and then and then with ducks, you need typically you need a a male with a harem of females. Otherwise, you know they they have a very um, uh, they can be very sexually aggressive in the in the wild ducks. It's typically only for a few weeks of the breeding season, but because we've inbred these domestics and you know the worst qualities into them, they're just extremely large, extremely heavy. And they have a very extended breeding season, which um, can be from as as late as late winter to the end of summer, maybe early fall. And these animals, since they're so inbred, especially say that your white Pekin ducks, which are the most common ones, you know, they have enough uh, difficulty carrying their own weight. So they are prone to things like staph infection, bumblefoot infection on the bottom of their feet, um, uh, very early arthritis and um, or degenerative joint disease and all these, these types of issues because they can't even carry their own weight. So when they have a big male mating on top of them, you know, constantly for months and months and months, you know, it literally breaks their bones and, and, yeah. and kills these females. Yeah. So that's something a lot of people need to keep in mind, too, when you get ducks. You need to be ready to separate your males from your females, you know, when, when those males are getting too aggressive. And you can do it pretty easily with, you know, those metal puppy exercise pens. But, but um, you have to know that that's going to be part of the process and you have to be, again, educated about what to expect and what's really involved with responsible care of these uh, ducks if you're going to do that to begin with. We got another email of uh, still on the tractor supply. This is, this is from Larry in Lakeland. It says, I disagree with your speaker's assessment of tractor supply. My grandmother bought her chicks from a place like tractor supply. It's a spring thing not a holiday thing. They also sell many types of feed. I believe as someone who has cared for many animals, the responsibility for the care of the animals is on the customer. I suspect Tractor Supply, like myself, expects customers to only buy animals they can care for. So um, that's that point of view. We're going to take a quick call. We're start, unfortunately, we're start, starting to reach the end of our time, but let's see if we can get a couple more thoughts involved here. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with uh, John DeLeonardo. Hello. Hello, go ahead, please. It's you. Um, I have purchased ducks in the past, uh, two years running. Did the very best I could regarding, you know, housing them and feeding them and et cetera. And we had a pond in our backyard. When it came time to release them, uh, they were, the first year they were wiped out by raccoons. It came, you know, we had some, uh, a guy named Critter Gitter to try and figure out what was killing our ducks with raccoons. Mm. And the ducks weren't fully grown at that time yet. So second year, our neighbor had been putting out piles of ant poison on his anthills in his backyard, and the ducks thought that was feed, so they went for it. It was very tragic, and it, it, it hurt my family a lot. We cried. Um, we were trying to do the best we could with the ducks. That's story number one. Story number two, I, I want to know if there's anything being done about protecting octopus up to pie because they are very very intelligent creatures and they're being eaten the world around and i think they need some protection that's a very good point i don't think we have time to get into that today because we're just at the tail end of today's show which is really focused on easter chicks but i appreciate that and i yeah. will try to make a note to come back to that at another time thank you so much I would, for your call i'd love to hear that thank th you th thanks a lot 
So uh, someone else adds by email, don't forget churches, religious organizations, buy chicks for Easter services, children's programs, etc. Ugh. So uh, Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think, again, that goes back to the hatching projects. I think that, that hatching projects aren't just in schools. A lot of times they are in these community centers or these libraries or these churches. But especially churches, I mean... I think, uh, I mean, it, all the religions basically say that that humans, um, it, you know, we have dominion over animals, but dominion does not mean domination. It means stewardship. It means that we should be caring for these animals. And yeah. I think that, you know, tr- treating these animals like like disposable props and, you know, trash to be discarded and you don't want them anymore teaches children all the wrong lessons. And this yeah. is not something that any god would, would support. Um, as far as uh, I, I want to mention, also, um, even if you're you're not on the animal welfare side of things, but you are, you know, an environmentalist, abandoning domestic ducks can also be problematic for ecosystems. So when you introduce them into into the wild, non-native species, um, you know, disrupt natural ecosystems, which rely on the migratory behavior of wild ducks and geese and the natural recovery period that comes from their absence. So since these animals can't migrate, you know, they, they're constantly, and, and they're starving, they're voraciously eating everything that they can. And waterfowl typically eat plants out from the roots, yeah. so they cause erosion. Um, okay. They also displace the wild waterfowl. You know, you see these migratory birds that are coming along. They see these much larger, scarier, you know, ducks. They, um, they, they, you know, they won't even stop over. They'll go to a different pond. Also, when these animals are coming from typically unhealthy scenarios, you're getting them from hatcheries that, you know, have big outbreaks of avian flu that we're hearing about right now. Yeah. So, I mean, when people get these animals who may be sick and then release them to the wild, you know, that's where, where these diseases are coming from. The, you know, avian flu and similar zoonotic diseases, they're not, you know, uh, mutating in the wild. They're mutating in these factory farms where people are getting these animals in the first place. Yeah. Well, we're past our time at this point, John, but let me just read one last quick email, which may put kind of a, a dark uh, spin on this uh, as well, but an important part of the dialogue, I think, is I think my first PTSD experience was when my father killed, plucked, gutted, and barbecued my little buddies five to six weeks after Easter. Life lessons with a uh, frown uh, emoji added. So, um, so again, I, I think we've hopefully learned a lot here about uh, ducks and, and what not to do. And uh, we can send you to um, the website for Humane Long Island, which is humanelongisland.org. We're speaking with John D. Leonardo. Thank you so much for joining us. And people can uh, find out a lot more on your website and obviously contact you, you directly for further instruction and information on things that we've been talking about. Thank you. And, yeah, I, I encourage folks, um, you know, if they, want, if they want to save ducks and, and the lives of other animals, keep those animals off your plate and you can save 200 animals. Every okay, week. John, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Tanya Flink of Veg News about one of her recent pieces. Grab these 18 accidentally vegan products on your next trip to the grocery store. We'll get to that piece and those products in a moment. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with Eddie Izzard and a piece called Parrots, extending our bird theme, though in a fairly absurd direction. Here's Eddie Izzard with Parrots in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Long John Silver had an eye patch. What a cool guy. Also had a parrot on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Parrots have never been in. They've never been hip because they suffer from the bimbo bird syndrome. 
They have great looking feathers, blues and really primary colours that kick out, but they look great, talk shite. <laughs> That's their problem. Hello! 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 That's all they say on occasion. Pieces of eight! And pieces of eight is the equivalent of a bird on your shoulder going, A tenner! A tenner. Can you shut up, bird, about the money? A tenner. Minor bird, that's what you want on your shoulder. Black feathers matches your eye patch. Minor birds say cool things like, oh, look at that sunset. That's my minor bird. Is that an aurora borealis? Or am I a Dutchman? And birds, birds fly, and, and we have aeroplanes, so that's the okay deal. But I think we have a fascination about hang gliding. When I remember seeing when James Bond did that hang gliding thing with the engine at the back, and we like the hang, ooh. I think everyone would like to hang glide, but we're just worried about that path bit. <laughs> where your belly flop hit the earth from 2,000 feet. That's the bit we're a little worried about. In fact, there's no parachute, no fucking nothing. And you can't ring and say, uh, steward. Um, <laughs> Yes, I've got a bit of an ache in my hang glider. It's just a path feeling. But, you know, birds fly, but no one's ever put a flighted bird, a bird that can fly, in an aeroplane. I mean, that, just, birds would just find that so weird. You know, it'd be an amazing documentary. You know, bird flying along and looking at the aeroplane. Don't need to fly. <laughs> just stick me out. Hey, I can just balance on this chair, hey. Fucking hell. Other birds flying outside the aeroplane. Hey, what's he doing inside? Hello. Fucking hell. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, um, the white wine. <laughs> That was Eddie Izzard in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Parrots, taken from his album Definite Article. Now it's time to speak with Tanya Flink about her recent piece in Veg News called Grab These 18 Accidentally Vegan Products on Your Next Trip to the Grocery Store. This is Tanya Flink on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning, how are you? Great, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. For those listening who may not be uh, familiar, maybe you could start with just a brief um, description of Veg News itself. Sure, so Veg News, we are the li largest vegan lifestyle magazine in the U.S. We have a print publication, which is going on over 20 years strong now, and then also um, a website, and so I work on the digital side, which is where you found this article. Yeah. And do you have a specific beat uh, at Veg News, apart from being a digital editor there? Uh, no, really. I cover anything and everything from, okay. you know, grocery store shops to travel pieces. Yeah. And what other, I think uh, you wear other hats uh, apart from that, from that responsibility at Veg News. Um, before we delve into the I piece, so. what's that? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, so I did that before we delve into the piece itself. Do you want to mention any of those other hats? Uh, sure. So Veg News has actually always been uh, my after 5 p.m. and weekend job. Okay. Um, currently, I work full-time as uh, in marketing for a plant-based meat company called Abbott's Butcher. Great. And uh, at some point, we'll talk more about that. But uh, So grab these 18 accidentally 
vegan products on your next trip to the grocery store. So first of all, um, how did you arrive at the idea for that piece? Well, you know, a lot of people, they don't have access to what we call, like, you know, natural retailers. It's, you know, they're going to their Targets, their Kroger's, their Publix. Um, so we wanted to give people options for what, you know, what is vegan at where they already shop, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we thought it might be a good idea to just help people out that way. And there were a ton of options, so it was really an easy piece to write. Yeah. So let's go through a few of those because some, I think some people might be surprised at some and some might say, well, I'm not, I don't know that I would eat that necessarily anyway, but, um, so were there some that surprised you as you were putting this list together? Uh, yeah, actually quite, quite a few. What were Um, some of those? Well, mixes, for example, like a lot of people, you know, not everyone loves to bake, but you all grow up with like a baking mix, right? But if you put in like a vegan egg replacer with uh, anything baking mix to a pancake mix, something that's like familiar, um, it's totally vegan. So that was interesting. Yeah. Um, also a lot of like the ice creams, like the very last one, the Talenti Sorbetto, mm-hmm. um, would never have thought to like pick that up as a vegan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they are, are accidentally vegan, which is always nice to have. And one thing that just jumped out just because it almost seems inherently not was cookie butter. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's fun. The speculos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, but there's others too, like pudding mix and, uh, um, Packaged cookies, and again, famously, Oreos, of course, are are vegan. Mm-hmm. But what you point out in this thing is that actually a number of other cookies are as well. And um, so it's really great because sometimes in each item, even if it's not every, of course, packaged cookie that would be vegan, but you, you spell out what they are so people can find those or spell it in the other listings, uh, specific things that, that yeah. meet, meet the and criteria. I, will like, I would like to point out that, like, obviously, there's an entire – section of dedicated vegan products at the grocery store, and that's the produce section, right? Right. Um, but this article is more kind of like, you know, for the, the fun foods, maybe not everyday foods, but things that, like, you grew up with that you're familiar with. So, right. you know, going and doesn't have to be like, I'm giving up everything. You know, you can still have some of these fun foods in your life. Right. No, that's the thing, and it's it's a pleasant surprise. And uh, and I think, as you also noted in the introduction, there's, of course, the whole other uh, area of just things that are specifically vegan, um, mm-hmm. you know, foods and dishes and stuff. So, so this is kind of like somewhere in between where you might not have imagined this would be vegan, and sure enough, they are. So, uh, so people can basically just find that by going to vegnews.com and then just searching the article. Probably pops up pretty quickly, as I recall. And um, mm-hmm. so, what are you working on? What's give us a sneak preview? We have like ten, fifteen seconds left. What's what's a, what's coming up next of one of your articles? Um, for veggies, I'm actually working on a day in the life series where I interview change makers and vegan entrepreneurs about, you know, what an average or a daily, um, what their day looks like. And it's really interesting to see how varied it is from person to person, from the cookie dough owner, um, to, um, Isaiah Hernandez of Queer Brown Vegan. Oh, that's great. I look forward to that. That's going to be really interesting. Great. Well, this has been Tanya Flank from uh, Veg News. And again, the piece we're mostly talking about was grab these 18 accidentally vegan products on your next trip to the grocery store. Tanya, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
All right, we have just about reached the end of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Scott Elliott's up next with uh, more great music after the NPR News and Jane Goodman.